We're going to turn to two passages this evening. And at the conclusion of the sermon towards the conclusion, we're going to turn to a third passage. But before the sermon, prior to the sermon, two passages. The first is found in Amos, Amos chapter 9. And we are focusing on this especially because there is a messianic prophecy as we will read in verse 11. And then we will go to Luke chapter 2, which is the beginning of the fulfillment of the messianic prophecy. We begin to read at verse 8 of the chapter, Amos 9, verse 8. Behold, The eyes of the Lord God are upon the sinful kingdom, and I will destroy it from off the face of the earth. And understand, this isn't talking about a heathen kingdom. This is talking about northern Israel, which at present was under the rule of Jeroboam II, called a sinful kingdom. And I will destroy it from off the face of the earth saving that I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob, saith the Lord. For lo, I will command and I will sift the house of Israel among all nations, like as corn is sifted in a sieve. Yet shall not the least grain fall upon the earth, that is, to bear any fruit for a time. All the sinners of my people shall die by the sword, which say, the evil shall not overtake nor prevent us. That the evil that is the prophet is talking about isn't going to overtake us, neither is it going to stand in our way. That is, really surround us. Somehow we're going to escape. God says, shall die by the sword. In that day will I raise up the tabernacle of David that is fallen. And that word tabernacle has to do with tent, not necessarily tabernacle, speaking of temple, but tent, house, a place of living. And close up the breaches thereof, and I will raise up his ruins, and I will build it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and of all the heathen which are called by my name, saith the Lord, that Doeth this. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that the plowman shall overtake the reaper, and the treader of grapes him that soweth seed. And the mountains shall drop sweet wine, and all the hills shall melt. In other words, the harvest will follow hard upon the heels of the planting. Days of blessing and of plentitude and of joy. And I will bring again the captivity of my people of Israel. And they shall build the waste cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink the wine thereof. They shall also make gardens and eat the fruit of them. And I will plant them upon their land, and they shall no more be pulled up out of their land which I have given them, saith the Lord thy God. Turn now to Luke chapter 2. 
And we're going to read the first seven verses. And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed, and this taxing was first made when Cyrenius was governor of Syria, and all went to be taxed, every one into his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth unto Judea, unto the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child. And now, the second part of our text. And it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that, they should, that she should be delivered, and she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. Thus far the reading of the sacred record. When Amos prophesies, they are days of darkness from a spiritual, ethical, moral perspective. Not so much from an economic and materialistic perspective prophesies in the days of Jeroboam the second, not the first, the second, who was, when it came to the kings of Israel, without a doubt was the strongest and most accomplished, and under his rule there was a certain security from the nations, and Assyria itself kept its distance at this time and they had a certain power, if you will say, self-rule under Jeroboam II and there was a prosperity even with respect to finance and property. However, it was a prosperity for an and for an elite few, if you will, a singular minority. In the days of Jeroboam, for all their outward material prosperity, they were days of great wickedness and apostasy. The, the altars of the pagans were multiplied in the land. It wasn't simply a golden calf and Dan and up Dan up in the north and Bethel in the in the south, but there were altars to about every pagan god you could find scattered throughout the land. And by the way, as he prophesies, if you read the beginning of the book, you'll find that he also had a word for Judah at that time under King Uzziah. And they were having a certain time of prosperity as well. But if you doubt deeper, search deeper into Judah, you would find that even though they were worshiping God and bringing certain sacrifices because they knew they needed God at times of crises, when they had times 
And when they needed help, there also were altars to the pagan gods that were being multiplied. A time then of spiritual corruption and apostasy, and you might say that was rotten in the end to the core in northern Israel, and it was proceeding that way in Judah as well. And the days of both kingdoms were numbered. But not only was there this great defilement of the worship of God with the altars to the pagan gods, but how they treated their fellow man was an abomination. And when you talk about their fellow man, they mean, I mean their fellow church members who were their fellow Jews, as I said already, with days of prosperity and material abundance for the elite and for the aristocrats and the nobles. But as we read in chapter 8, verse 5, the ephah was small and the shekel was great and the falsifying of the balances by deceit. If I may put it in our language, the bag of groceries was very, very small and the shekel did not have a whole lot of value. You needed a lot of shekels to buy a small bag of groceries and in the end the poor did not have those shekels. They all belonged to the rich and the wealthy. And how were the poor going to survive? The poor could only survive in those days by willing to sell themselves into slavery and servitude to their own brethren in the church, if you will, in the nation. And the rich took full advantage of that and they turned their fellow Jews, really fellow church members, into their slaves and to their servants. And those little households with their families barely, barely survived. They fed their animals, which were to them of more value, more than they fed their fellow Jewish slaves and servants and church members. And you wonder why the Lord God was filled with an indignation. And we could go on. But as the result of that immorality and of that corruption and misuse, abuse of the poor, God says, I look at you, I shall pluck you as, I treat you as a brand in the burning, a piece of charred wood. And what, beloved, do you build with charred wood? You build nothing with charred wood. That charred wood, you understand, represented his judgment upon him. It was coming. So this Amos prophesies in the days of Jeroboam II with all of its corruption, with all of its defilement, all of its wickedness towards God and towards their fellow men. And he says, I'm going to scatter you to the wind under the brute treatment of the Assyrians. And Jeroboam II dies, and within a decade, northern Israel is no more. And of that, you understand, Amos prophesies, as we read, I'm going to the sinful kingdom, and I shall utterly destroy the house, and I shall not, I shall not utterly destroy it, but the sinful kingdom shall be destroyed by the by the sword and sifted as, as wheat and scattered throughout the nations. But you understand that word, while from a certain point of view just and right, left, it seemed the remnant that was left without hope. It's one thing to suffer at the hands of our fellow men 
and to have, have nothing and just survive. But now we hear the words of the prophet and he speaks of a coming judgment and the righteous shall suffer with the unrighteous and where shall we and our children and our houses be scattered to the wind? Has God forgotten us? Have we forfeited all hope, not only on the earth, but if he's that angry, filled with wrath, what about the promises? Are they not but hollow words? We, not even, we don't even have a hope for a better future in a future glory and kingdom. All is forfeited and lost. You read Amos and it almost comes to that conclusion. And it's in that context you read, beloved, in that day, after that judgment falls and following that judgment and the display and the satisfaction of my wrath, yet in that day I will raise up the tabernacle of David that's fallen and close up the breaches thereof and will raise up his ruins. I will build it as in the days of old. In other words, I have not yet forgotten my promises. I will bring that promise, my word to pass, of bringing another ruler in whose house, if you will, and by whose power there can be shelter and safety and even abundance, if you will. The days come, I have not forgotten my word. Do not lose hope. And it's always a word in season, beloved, in the days we live as well, however mounting may be the, the wickedness and the forces that stand against Christ and his truth and the, and the church and who seem to prevail, we must never lose hope as the Lord promised that this Savior, this great son of David, this king of kings would come and he did come in the first advent, we may lay hold of the promise that he is coming again and there shall be a day when not wickedness and sin dominates, but righteousness rules from sea to utmost sea and with shelter and safety and uh, a joy that in the end can never diminish. And it all ties in, you see, with the birth of Mary's firstborn, the fulfillment, the beginning of the fulfillment of this prophecy in Amos. So, Mary's firstborn, a builder's son, because there is the promise of a kingdom and the raising up, you see, of this tent, this house of David that has fallen. You see that Mary's firstborn is born to a fallen house, born to a, born as a builder's son, and renewing kingdom hope. Mary's firstborn, a builder's son, born to a fallen house, born as a builder's son, and renewing kingdom hope. As we approach the marking of the first advent, we call it Christmas. Advent means the first coming, that great redemptive event. It always strikes me it's a time of 
singing and of, of songs. Turn on the radio and there's a whole selection of, of songs. Even the world is singing with its songs, though you can also hear any number of Christmas carols and any number of programs the children may have, Sunday school, schools and what have you. And maybe some organization has decided to put on what they call Handel's Messiah, and you can go listen to the rendition of Handel's Messiah, a time of singing and of, of song. And man may wonder why that's so appropriate for this time of year, that is, for marking the advent of the Lord. And of course, the reason is we, the time of, of joy, and if you will, a reminder of a, of a hope, even when times are, are dark, dark and dreary. There is the birth of a, of a son. There's the birth of a child, the birth of a promised king, God keeping his word, if you will, at long last and not failing to keep his, his word. And you consider what this little one is going to become and what he's going to accomplish in the establishment of an everlasting kingdom and when hope shall be reality. And there shall be, as I said, righteousness from sea to utmost sea. And when it shall be as described in figurative language that the, uh, that the treader of the, of the grapes shall overcome him that soweth the seed and the mountains shall drop sweet wine and all the hills shall, shall, shall melt. And there shall be peace and there shall be safety in the roof of all threat and of all, all evil. And... He came once according to God's word and the indication is then that having come once God will keep his word again and he shall return again and so there is this reason for songs and of, of singing and of anthems and what we call Christmas carols. Some orthodox and perhaps some not so and various phrases that perhaps take liberties with the actual history but for all that we sing and we and a certain truth in them as we sing them. But I must admit that every time that I read Luke chapter 2, the song that comes to mind is that carol that says, O little town of Bethlehem, I'll still see thee lie beneath thy deep and dreamless sleep. The silent stars go by. But especially, it's that phrase, the hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. The hopes and fears of all the years culminate, you see, in the event that took place out in the streets of Bethlehem that one night long ago when the angels themselves appeared in the hills of Ephrata and told the shepherds that born to you this day in the city of David is a Savior who was Christ the Lord, the hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee in the streets, the event that took place in Bethlehem that night long ago. All the years, and when you talk about all the years, you're going right back to the beginning of time and of history itself and all the events and all the occurrences that, that have taken place leading up to this, this time, what Galatians calls the fullness of time, if you will, when everything is to the very brim and now filled to the brim begins to go over over the side of the of the cup and the and the blessings of what God has promised begin to come to pass. Everything culminates here in this great event 
of the birth of Mary's firstborn, the hopes and fears of all the years. And we're referring, of course, especially to the hopes of the saints, the hope of the saints that goes back to the very dawn of time, the hope of the, of the saints that goes right back to Mother Eve herself when she groaned and labored to bring forth her firstborn with a certain hope and a certain expectation leaning upon a promise that there's going to be a seed of the woman that will Eve undo what you have brought to pass because she well knew beloved what she by her foolishness had brought to pass upon her own family upon her own her own children to be upon the whole of creation death the curse sorrow fear Violence, pain, darkness. Adam, what have I done? What have I done? What have I brought to pass by my foolishness upon the very creation itself that the animals live in fear and we even live in a certain fear ourselves and there is now death. Who can undo what I and we have done and brought to pass? And she labors and she groans to bring forth her firstborn and names him Cain, possibly in the hope that this is the one whom God will use to undo what she brought to pass upon the whole of creation. And then, of course, she finds to her sorrow that this Cain is any one but the one who will bring undo what she has done, but rather he simply represents the sin itself and intensifies the sorrow and the pain when he rises up and kills his brother Abel, as we happen to read in 1 John 3 this morning. And Abel himself, for all of his virtues, unable to be the savior of creation and undo what he brought to pass and restore it to its glory and to its perfection and to its joy. And he's replaced by Seth, who lives a long time to be sure, but in the end he also dies in under the sentence of death. And the whole line, you know, of Eve that goes from Seth that reaches all the way through Noah and Abraham and reaches finally, finally to David. But even and David, for a time, of course, is, uh, is one that has been foretold. Shiloh, out of thee shall he come forth. He's a type. He's a foreshadowing. He's a, he's a king, a wonderful king, a shepherd, shepherd king. And he expands the borders of the, of, of the nation and overcomes the enemies, Philistines and all, all the rest. And there's peace on the, on the borders and there's certain security and safety in the, in the kingdom. Be that as it may, he can't overcome the power of death and he certainly cannot stop all of, of sin and evil and not the threat of evil itself. He had to keep his army intact and continue to fight battles really until the very time of his passing. And he could bring forth a Solomon and a Solomon who had a kingdom that had a certain amount of glory for a time, and then 
what happens to the kingdom under the reign of Solomon. It gives rise, it gives, it gives, gives up it, it over to finally to Rehoboam and the division of the, of the kingdom. And you follow that line of David and Solomon from Rehoboam on. And finally, you come, beloved, to Zedekiah. Notice the name that starts with Z, the last of the kings that ruled in Jerusalem that came from the line of David. And how does Zedekiah's life end? With the destruction of Jerusalem and the slaughter of the princes of his house and his eyes being poked out. And he goes blind in captivity to Babylon. That's the line, you'll see, that reaches from Seth through David finally to Zedekiah and what is left then of the royal line when all is said and done. You have a Zerubbabel that returns. He leads 50,000 or so, but he never sits upon the throne in Jerusalem. He himself is under the decrees of the emperors of Persia and must simply obey their will and their their whims come to the point beloved where it's Ichabod isn't it the glory has departed and the question goes up then where is is the is the glory and if you want to ask that you could ask that of Jeremiah who sat upon the rubble of of Jerusalem and writes the book of the Lamentations and he says all you who pass by see if there be any sorrow like unto my sorrow as there not a stone left upon a stone and there is blood splattered upon all the stones and it's the blood not only of the soldiers but it's the blood of little infants that have been dashed against the rocks as well see if there be any sorrow like unto my sorrow and it's of that calamity that would fall upon both northern Israel and in time Judah itself, that Amos has prophesied. And the cry of the remnant is, why go on? It's one thing if we have all these enemies, but if God himself has turned against us and we are under his wrath and are to be disinherited, why go on? There are promises but the promises seem mainly simply to be a certain hollow word. Promises of victory and of glory. Win, Lord, win. And then these words in that context, as he has said already, save that I will not completely destroy my people from off destroy the house of Jacob and then in that day will I raise up the tabernacle of David that is fallen and close up the breaches thereof. And that's a prophecy beloved that reaches unto Luke chapter 2 verse 6. And so it was that while they were there the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. Mary, who goes all the way back, you know, to Mother Eve. And born to her is the one in whom the hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. Born 
there, while they were there. They, who is they, and where were they, and why were they there? They, of course, are Joseph and Mary, and Joseph is of the royal line. Read Matthew chapter 1. Joseph goes right back to David himself. He is a direct descendant as a firstborn of David's royal line. Mary, on the other hand, if you read the genealogy in in Luke chapter 3, is of the spiritual line, who comes not through Solomon, but who comes through Nathan. But both tying back to the house of David, one from the royal line and the other of the spiritual line. Spiritual believers, name after name, so that it's a continual line of those who are the saved and the redeemed. Why they were there in Bethlehem. And we may ask, well, why were they, who are the house and lineage of David from the royal line and from the spiritual line there in Bethlehem? And you could say, well, there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus, and to be sure, that was the occasion why they were where they were there, and when it says because they were to be taxed, that has to do, of course, with a census. They didn't go there to pay their taxes. They went to register their names to be numbered as Caesar Augustus wanted to know the population of various parts of, the, of, of his world, of his kingdom, so that he could tax them according to their senses, according to the population, dividing Palestine into three different sections of the north, central, and southern part, the southern part revolving around Jerusalem, what we call Judea, and on the basis of the population, the census, he would then levy a tax, and the tax collectors would have to, every on an annual basis, bring that much money to the coffers of Caesar, because Caesar had great expenses, and the great expenses of Caesar not only had to do with the payment of his armies that were on the borders of his kingdom to keep his kingdom safe from the barbarians, but he was involved in building projects in Rome. He wanted to make a name for himself that would last, as they say, and was building mammoth mammoth building projects of coliseums and shrines and temples and office buildings and so on and streets in the city being repaved and and aqueducts and all, all the rest. He was going to make a name for himself through his great building projects so his dwelling places grand would for generations stand, you know. But those who were in subjection to him were going to have to finance this and so the senses, so he would know how much money he could expect from each of these different areas and provinces. And so the decree has gone out and Joseph and Mary both belonging to the house of David that's affiliated here with Bethlehem, the house of David's ancestry, are in Bethlehem. That's the occasion why they are there. But that's not the reason why they are there. The question arises, beloved, why they they are there. Why is are members of the royal house and of the spiritual line in 
Bethlehem. And the reason, of course, has to do with the lowly estate of the house of David at this time, so that the proper heir of the royal line is nothing but a peasant. And the reason that his house has fallen so low, of course, is a story in itself of sin and of disobedience, of murder and of adultery and of betrayal of trust and of pride as well and of ego and immorality. All you have to do is consider the history of Solomon with his 300 wives and all the rest and allowing them to bring certain altars for their own gods and introducing it into into Judah. And then he has a son named Rehoboam. And what do we know about Rehoboam? That he had an eagle larger than the state of Texas as they, they might put it. Proud beyond measure. My father, you say, has taxed you for his building projects. Well, let me tell you something. I'm not going to alleviate those taxes or your service. My little pinky will be bigger than my father, will be the size of my father's thigh. I'll sit on you and I'll crush you and you will listen to me and you will do what I say to serve my will. A man with ego and with pride. Not to serve the nation, but the nation is going to serve me and my coffers. And the sins of David and of Solomon and of Rehoboam bear fruit. And Jeroboam the first says with those who follow him, what, what have we in the house of David? See to your own affairs, house of David. We're done with you. And you have the division of the kingdom. And that, of course, in itself is a judgment of God. But in the end, that judgment of, of God ends up finally not only in what we might call the division of the kingdom, but it ends up in the Babylonian captivity itself and the royal line all but disappears from, from history. So once Jerusalem is destroyed and they're taken to captivity, there's not a son of David that ever has a crown upon his head and sits upon a throne in Jerusalem. And so it has come to pass as the judgment upon the sins of the house of David, the royal house, as you read the history of the Old Testament, that you have this Joseph and this Mary, and they go to Bethlehem, not as a king and a queen, but they go as peasants. And so it is, while they were there that the days were accomplished that she should be delivered and what is left what is left of the house of David there is nothing left of the house of David in fact when they appear at, in Bethlehem and they need a place for Mary to deliver her firstborn there's not even room in the end they're not even recognized, it seems, as being of the royal house of David, and they're put out on the, on the streets, and she brings forth her firstborn, not in Jerusalem, but in a cattle stall. And now, beloved, what shall we say of the promises? Of the promises of God that have to do with wisdom and, and might and of, of victory and of 
righteousness and all the rest. Nothing but hollow words, wouldn't you say? Where is the hope? Where is the light? Indeed, beloved, it seems as though all is darkness. And yet, for all of that, there is here a gospel word. And that gospel word is found in verse 6 when it says her, the days that she should be delivered were accomplished and then you turn to chapter, verse 7 and you read, and she brought forth her firstborn son. Her firstborn son. And you tie that firstborn son of Mary in with Bethlehem. I've asked the question why they're in Bethlehem a number of times. They're in Bethlehem because you could say the occasion is the decree of Caesar Augustus. And a second answer is because of the sins of David and the royal line and the judgments of God upon that royal line and the nation as a result. And they are stripped of all their power and their glory, of their crowns and of their, of their scepters, and they end, end up under the dominion of other emperors who represent even the kingdom of Antichrist, Babylon and Persia, and here Rome herself and the great Caesar Augustus. But still, the reason they are in, judge, they are in Bethlehem, beloved, is not simply a matter of God's judgment. It is a matter of God's judgment, but it is also a matter of God's prophecy. It's according to prophecy. You know the prophecy that you find in Micah chapter 5 concerning thou Bethlehem Ephrata, you know, out of thee shall he come forth, who is to be the ruler of Israel. Prophecy. Why is that the prophecy and why is that God's will? Not that this son of Mary who is of the spiritual line and who will be adopted by Joseph of the royal line, why is he not born in Jerusalem but why is it God's will that he be born in Bethlehem? That becomes the great question. Notice, speaks here of Mary's firstborn. Not of Joseph's firstborn, but of Mary's firstborn. And the Lord God would have Mary's firstborn born in Bethlehem, which is the city of David's ancestry. Why would the Lord God want this great promise son of David, to be born not in Jerusalem with its pomp and circumstances, with its past glory, but why would he want it to be born in Bethlehem? The insignificant, if you will, and the little village that has hardly a reputation anymore, and the obscure, because the Lord God is saying, I'm going to begin all over again. Once there was one who was born in Bethlehem whose name was David 
and I used him to establish an earthly kingdom and give some security to my, my people and to write various documents which are infallible words of God as well. And there was a certain glory and there was a certain safety and a certain prosperity and it reached a course for a time as we sung like a spreading, spreading tree and then ended up being cut down due to its sins and to its weaknesses. And it ends finally in a man named Joseph. Who was Joseph? All Joseph was was a carpenter. And I do not mean any insult, insult to those who are carpenters. But I mean he's only a carpenter when you compare him to what his great-great-grandfather David once was as a warrior and a king who could man an army that would have been, been willing to contest with Caesar Augustus and the Roman army and with the presence of God in that army would have contested with Caesar and the army and without a doubt had cast Caesar and his army back into the Mediterranean Sea and kept the nation safe with the borders secure. But that's not Joseph anymore. He's not one who has that military power the right to rule, to build a kingdom. He's a carpenter. From a certain point of view, all he is, and you compare him to what Caesar is under whose rule Joseph is, he has to obey the decree of Caesar. He cannot counteract the decree. He himself must be submissive to, to Caesar. Caesar rules. All he is is a carpenter, and that doesn't mean he's a builder, you know, of fine homes and so on. That's one thing. But really, Joseph was one who was one who fixed broken furniture, a mender of that those the things that had had broken down, and maybe patch up your roof, or if the if the plaster was falling away, replaster the home and fix the windows and and so on. A repairer of of homes, if you will, and a mender mender of, of broken furniture and, and so on as he worked with his wood and maybe made some, some cabinets as well. But that's all he was when all is said and done. And for all his virtues could not possibly accomplish what needed to be accomplished for the people of God to build the walls of Zion, if you will, and to gather her wandering sons and to stand in the face of darkness and of death and of sin and of evil and the evil one himself and contest with those spiritual forces that are, are, are powers of wickedness in high places. That was completely beyond him. He couldn't, even, he couldn't even compete with Caesar Augustus, let alone with the powers of darkness and of sin and the gates of hell and build the, the city, you see, that has the, has the walls that would keep us safe Beyond him, that's what the house of David had begotten to. There's no genius, there's no great ability, just a common, ordinary believer who stands as much in need of a Lord and Savior as all the rest of mankind does. Where is the hope? Where is the glory? Where is the fulfillment of the promise? And then you read this, don't you, in 
Luke chapter 2. And she brought forth her firstborn son. Not the firstborn son, her firstborn son. Which raises the question, who's the father of this son? Who's the father of this little one? On the answer to that question, beloved, hinges the whole of world history and the whole outcome of world history. Who this child's father is if he is not Joseph of the line of David. On the identity of this child which depends upon whose father this whose who, whose father this child is of, of whose father this child is hinges our faith and our hope doesn't it whose father is he i'll tell you who his father is beloved he is a builder no he is not merely a builder is he He's the builder. In fact, he's not even the builder. He's the great creator. That's who this child's father is. The creator himself who has made the starry splendor, who has the power and the glory, doesn't he? And that means that in this child, and I'm going to put it this way, is the DNA of this almighty God. And I say that, of course, simply in the way of reference. What I mean by the DNA, I mean the ability and the power and the glory and the divinity, the one who was born to Mary is indeed the fulfillment of what you read in Amos chapter 9, verse 11. In that day will I raise up the tabernacle of David that has fallen. I will do what the house of David itself could not do. I will undo for Mother Eve which she herself and the sons who came from men could not do. I will stand in the place of a man and I will work in the womb of a virgin and I will bring forth a son who is related to David, but he's going to go as a replacement of David. I'm going to begin again, if you will, starting with Bethlehem. And from Bethlehem will now come not simply a David, but will come one who is the Son of God. And beloved, in him is all power and all glory and the wisdom to make a creation itself and to raise up walls that, can, that are defended. And when the identity of this one, the identity of this one is established, beloved, you may understand that the very foundations of the gates of hell are shaken and the nations of this, of this world because this is the Almighty and who shall contend with him when he comes to the fullness of his glory. That's the gospel here, you say. Her firstborn, who is the Son of God himself, on the truth about which, beloved, hinges the whole of our faith and hope 
and really the truth of which is to the key to the whole of history and how history will end and who will have the victory when all is said and done. And so this great gospel word. A builder's son is born to Mary, the builder's son, the son of the great creator with all of his power to accomplish what is promised here to raise it up and to withstand the forces of evil themselves, themselves to withstand sin itself and, and darkness and to cast it down. The enemies are vanquished, you see, in the end, and the city is raised, and under his wings and under his power there's shelter and safety and preservation, and in the end what we call salvation. It says, you know, she was delivered. It's interesting. She was delivered. Not simply she brought forth from a certain point of view, but the pregnancy as she brings forth a son is her own deliverance, and she represents, you know, the church. I'm going to wax a bit romantic perhaps, but in many ways she represents Mother Eve herself. And when she brings forth this child, her firstborn, Mother Eve in heaven is made aware that the seed of the woman has been born, I can assure you. The angels were there, you know. They witnessed it. And don't think the angels did not report in heaven what had taken place on earth. And Mother Eve here. The Lord God has accomplished for us what we could not accomplish for ourselves. I will do for you what you cannot do for yourself. And take the curse upon myself, make the payment for sin, lay the foundation by the blood of my son, and on that foundation raise up an everlasting kingdom of righteousness. And it's as though Mother Eve holds in her arms, you see, the seed of the woman and says, Lord God, thou art faithful and thy name is love. Now, with that in mind, we turn to one more passage that quotes these words. And that passage is found in Acts chapter 15. And this is the great Jerusalem council, and they're dealing with the great issue of the Gentiles being brought into the church as Gentiles uncircumcised and the eaters of unclean meat and all the rest. And Peter has just been in the house of Cornelius and the Holy Spirit has fallen upon Cornelius the Gentile. And Peter has gone to the New Testament church in Jerusalem and said, the Lord has made very plain to us that the Gentiles can be brought in as Gentiles and have equal status with us as Jews. And they don't need to be circumcised. Baptism is them with them, and we may have full fellowship with them as Gentiles. And they have to settle that. And as they begin to settle that, finally a man stands up. And that man, beloved in this assembly, happens to be named James. You know who James is? James is really, his name is Jacob, Jacob. The English puts it into James from Jacob. From Jacob. He's the half-brother of Christ. This is not James the Apostle. This is James the half-brother of Christ. This is the firstborn of Joseph. This is the one 
who by descent really belongs to the royal line. And he's born of Mary of the spiritual line. And he has a brother named Jesus who was born of Mary, but not of, jo- of Joseph the father. Here is the one who is the direct descendant of King David, if you will. And he defers to his older brother, Jesus of Nazareth, and says, I am not the promised one. I confess him to be the promised Messiah. And then as the Gentiles are being brought in, he says, men and brethren, hearken to me. 15 verse 13. As Simon hath declared how God did visit the Gentiles and take out of them a people for his name, to this agree the words of the prophets. And he's quoting Amos chapter 9 verse 11 now, as it is written. After this I will return and will build again the tabernacle of David, which is fallen down. And I will build again the ruins thereof, and I will set it up. So he quotes here Amos chapter 9. This is the fulfillment of the prophecy, the beginning of it. The residue, that the residue of men might seek after the Lord, and all the Gentiles upon whom my name is called, saith the Lord, who doth do with all these things, known to God, are all his works in the beginning of the world. That is, God has determined to do this from the beginning of the world, to work in this way. And the residue of the men might seek the Lord and all the Gentiles upon whom my name is called. I will raise up again, build the tabernacle, the tent of David and his house that is fallen down. You see, the birth of Christ Jesus is not the full fulfillment of the words. The birth of Christ Jesus are the beginning of fulfillment of Amos' words. The word of promise has to do with really the new Jerusalem ruled by Christ Jesus as the King of kings and Lord of lords in which there is no sin, there is no wickedness, there is no darkness, there is no devil, there is no suffering, there is no pain, there is righteousness and peace and joy. But before there can be that city beloved, there have to be inhabitants, citizens of the city. And so James is saying, Ren and brethren, we have been commissioned by the Lord himself to go forth and gather the citizens of that kingdom that we may gather a people who may enjoy the blessings of that city and of that kingdom. So let us go forth and preach the gospel to gather the citizens chosen to be the heirs of that city. And once the Lord has blessed the work of the gathering by the preaching of the gospel from the nations, then my brother will come again on the clouds of heaven and there will be a new Jerusalem and a new heavens and a new earth. And there shall be no more suffering or pain or loss or death, but joy. Let's preach the gospel, gather that church, and await the return of the second advent so that the words of Amos may be fully fulfilled. Beloved, we are the benefactors, you see, of this promise and the inheritance that is promised of the everlasting kingdom is our inheritance. And one day comes the new Jerusalem in all of its glory. You'll be there, won't you? You'll be there with hope and expectation by faith, confessing the same Lord and Jesus 
that James, the heir of David, confessed, deferring to him because he is the firstborn and he is the victor or the dark domain. Amen. Father in heaven, we thank thee for thy word, for thy promises, for thy faithfulness, that we may be numbered with those who will enjoy the blessings of the everlasting kingdom when it comes in all of its glory. We wait the day, preserve us till that day, in our generations as well, and keep us in the way of faith and a good witness. In Jesus' name, by hope, amen.